0: Okay, we're going to show some photos up here and you'll have about 10 seconds to work out what they all have in common. You can talk to the person next to you and then I'll get you to call out the answer. Starting now. Okay, time up. What do you think the answer is? Yes, that's right. They all have sung renditions of Amazing Grace. (laughs) So, Amazing Grace, it's the most popular song ever written. According to Apple Music, it's on 11,000 different albums around the world, and it was written 251 years ago. Now, the story behind the song, it was written by probably the most unlikely person that you'd ever expect to write a song that's played in church, It was written by John Newton, who was a sailor in 1700s. Here he is. When on board his first ship, he wrote a series of obscene songs about his captain, (laughs) which the uh, crew loved to sing loudly. Naturally, that didn't endear him to the captain, He got into lots of trouble, and he was actually thrown overboard several times. The captain said John Newton was the single most profane sailor that he had ever met. Newton called himself an angry young man. He was a radical atheist, proudly. In an era where that just really wasn't common, he made it his goal to deconvert every single Christian he met. He eventually was so annoying that his own crew kicked him off the ship in Sierra Leone, Africa. At the age of 20, John Newton became a slave in Africa. He was trafficked as a sex slave, and he eventually ended up hating everybody. When he finally escaped, he became the captain of several ships, several slave ships, He saw people as opportunities to make money and buy and sell. And this is whom the beautiful, amazing grace song comes from. In 1748, something happened that changed his life. He got caught in a storm. He fastened both hands on the wheel, thinking he was going to die, and he prayed the first prayer that he's probably ever prayed in his life, And it was one sentence. He screams out desperately, Lord, have mercy on me. And this is from an atheist. After 11 hours of battling a terrifying, life-threatening storm, they survive. Originally headed for Liverpool, they limp way off course to Donegal Island. Newton says he was very confused, and this didn't prove to him that God existed. It was almost the opposite, because Newton's logic was, if there actually is a God who is just and holy, why didn't he let me die? He saw himself as the worst person in the entire world. That was his own self-image. He wondered, why did God show me mercy? My prayer was panicked, superficial, a prayer of desperation to save my own life. How could God save him, he was thinking. So he starts reading the Bible. And, you know, it took six years, and he very slowly converts to Christianity. Eventually, he becomes a pastor It's a tiny little church in Olney, England. The song he wrote for the church to sing on New Year's Day, 1773, is the song that we now know as Amazing Grace. You can feel the emotion behind the words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. The passage we're looking at today is based on, or this passage, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, is the passage that inspired amazing grace. Quick recap. The book of Ephesians is a letter that's written almost 2,000 years ago by one of the leaders of the early church, it was Paul, the Apostle Paul, and he's in prison at this time in Rome under Caesar Nero. Nero was a brutal persecutor of Christians, and that's in early 60s AD, after death. The Christians are starting to be ostracized and marginalized, and we know now that this is going to end with Christians being burned at the stake— and fed to the lions. That's where it's heading. So it's really heading in a bad direction. And Paul's writing to his friends in Ephesus to say, and this was a church that he helped plant, I know what they're saying about you. This is who you really are. This is your true identity, and this is the identity for all believers. Who am I? Who are we? Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, I am blessed, I am chosen, I am secure, I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I am a child of God. And then Paul launches into what we read in chapter 2. This is the passage that inspired the amazing grace. Paul says four things. I am saved from death. Paul begins to describe how God's great power has benefited individuals within the church by emphasizing the depths of the sin plight, the sinful plight they were in before they knew Jesus, or before they believed the gospel. Everyone, without exception, chose to sin. They received encouragement to do this by the norms laid down by the rebellious world around them and the devil. Sound familiar? That's our story too, right? Paul has described the plight of human rebellion against God in the bleakest of terms. There are no exceptions to it, and humanly speaking, no escape from it. Grace comes as a huge relief. Paul's readers, the Ephesians, heard and believed the gospel and were saved. So there's a lot here, hints about spiritual warfare and spiritual world, and he's going to get more into that in the final chapter of the book of Ephesians. But his main point, you were dead. Then you were made spiritually alive in Christ through faith, when you believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So we have the old covenant, the law. That's when we got the Ten Commandments, when Moses came down with the Ten Commandments, our effort, our performance-based, and we were under the law for 1,500 years. It's all about works, do, do, do. Grace came through what Jesus accomplished on the cross, and he took our punishment. It's all done. It was all Jesus' work, none of our own effort, and all we do is receive. We just need to rest and be, and the more we rest in Christ, the more we become like Christ. So instead of do, 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 works, our own effort, it is done, D-O-N-E. When the law was given, when Moses came down from the mountain, 3,000 people died as a punishment for their sins. The law brought death. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people were saved On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was sent to live amongst all believers for the very first time. You know, in Romans 6.23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. Under the law, if you broke one law, you were guilty of breaking all ten. And the penalty for breaking a commandment was death. So they used to make animal sacrifices for atonement and forgiveness of their sins. Because no one has ever been able to live without sin, apart from Jesus. For all have sinned, and all fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans three twenty-three. Under the law, it's all about our own strength, striving to do better. It's about performance. The focus is on us. The law demands, demands, demands. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. See the difference? We've got to be careful not to mix the law with now. We need to rest in Jesus. Now, here's an example here. Now, this water was meant to look pretty clear, okay? (laughs) And I was going to say, look how clear this water appears. And then this is representing the law. We were given the law, like the Ten Commandments, to make us aware of our sinful nature. So this law is us looking pretty okay, you know, we think we're, we're pretty good. Put in the law and we stir it all around. No one can measure up to the law. See how murky it's got? All of a sudden we look pretty filthy. Just makes me want to add one other illustration. If you think of a white sheep and you can see it on the hillside and that's looking pretty white, it's looking pretty pure. You take that same white sheep and you stick it on pure white, white snow that's just fallen and that is just blindingly white and all of a sudden that sheep, it doesn't look so white, it sudden, it looks dirty and things like that. That is what happens with us when the law, when we're measured against the law, we're all sinful. All of us can't help but break the law. None of us are perfect. It shows up our sinful nature. That's what the law was designed to do. We are by no means perfect, and we are unable to keep all these holy laws, so we need a saviour. The penalty for sin is death, and God is a just judge. He can't let us off scot-free, otherwise he wouldn't be a just judge. He'd be corrupt. And God is the most just judge of all judges. However, imagine being in that courtroom, and we're awaiting our sentence from the judge, and the judge is just about to sentence us, and then someone else pipes up, I'll take their punishment, I'll do it, sentence me instead. And that's exactly what happened with us. Jesus did that. He took our place. He took our punishment, the punishment we deserved, and he didn't. He took it instead of us, so that we get to go free. That's exactly what happened. That person was Jesus. God sent him because while God is just, God is also incredibly loving. Jesus took our punishment so that we don't ever get punished. We just have to choose to receive his sacrifice. We have to we have to choose to receive what he's done for us and then live out of that new life, that position of sonship and daughtership that he gave us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood, like the sacrificial lamb, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand Unpunished. We don't get punished. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law. No, Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. Many of us celebrated the Jewish Seder meal recently. This meal ritual was all about awaiting the Messiah, the Messiah that was going to save them. They know they need a Savior, only when the Messiah, Jesus, came, They didn't recognize him because they were expecting a military leader that was going to overthrow the military Roman occupation. But instead, Jesus, the Son of God, came and was our sacrificial lamb, your sacrificial lamb, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Jesus paid the penalty so that your and my sin, past, present, future, is forgiven and we have the gift of his righteousness. God looks at us and he sees Jesus's righteousness. He doesn't see yours, he looks at Jesus's righteousness when he sees you. Grace is a huge part of the gospel. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. If they are Jewish and they believe in Jesus as the Messiah, then they are Messianic Jews and they are believers and Christians. So we are no longer under this law We're under the grace that came through Jesus, through his doing and his sacrifice for us. So if you were going to Raglan and you happen to see someone, um, heaven forbid, drowning in the water, what would you do? What does that person need? Drowning people don't need instructions, you know, keep your head out of the water, kick harder. No, they need rescuing. And that is what Paul is getting, getting at in these first few verses. We didn't need instruction. We didn't need even more doctrine or, or laws. We needed rescuing. After 1,500 years, you know, it was proven that we couldn't do it ourselves. We can't do anything in our own strength. We needed rescuing. No amount of instruction helped with our sinful nature Jesus was the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Old Testament because we were as good as dead. We were dead in our sins, Paul says, all of us, all of us also lived in the world in sin, gratifying the crazy cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath, all of us. Paul's talking about the shared experience of humanity. Paul's saying, Yep, me too. I get it. He's including himself. No one is better than anyone else, and no one is worse than anyone else. So don't ever look down on anybody because we're all alike. We were all sinners, we were all in need of God. We all needed rescue, but now we are believers and we're saved through grace. And people need to experience the love of the Father, and this is what Paul writes about next. I am saved in love. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Because of his great love for us, Because of his great love for us, let's just let that sink in. God loved us first. He did all of this for us first. He didn't wait for us to love him. He set the gospel up for us, so all we have to do is receive. He couldn't have made it easier for us. Because of his great love for us, he loved us first. You know, God gave the law through Moses. And Moses was God's servant, it says in Hebrews. He, he brought the law to reveal our sin and our need for Christ, our need for a Savior. But it took God's Son, Jesus, who came in the flesh, to unfold the nature and the heart of God for us. God's great love for us. You know the prodigal son story that Cecilia read for us earlier? It's revealing, Jesus is revealing when he told this parable, the heart and love that the Father has for us. That's why it's so important. The story reveals God's true self and the relationship he has with us. And I can't help but wonder if there are Christians out there who perhaps have fallen away from God and are not going to church anymore. I wonder if they have an incorrect view of our Father God. You know, do they perhaps not understand that how much the Father just desires with everything in him just for us to come home? He doesn't care what you and I have done, what they've done. God just wants his child back. He longs for his child to come back for him, come back to him. He just wants to love his child, to do everything for that child, God wants to celebrate and throw a party for them. He wants to clothe them in splendor. He wants to honor them. It's his child. You're his child. That's what you are. That's your identity. There is clearly no length he wouldn't go to to have you home with him. You know, your position with God never changes. Once you're a believer... You're always God's child. You've been born again spiritually into his family. You didn't earn that by your own effort. You cannot lose that privilege by your own effort. It was Jesus' effort alone. All you have to do is receive and rest. It's all been done for you. You know, last week someone came up to me after the service and They were saying, Pastor Rachel, I know you've got a pet hate about us all being called sinners, but I think I've sinned like 10 times before church this morning, and what would you say to that? And I said, well, that doesn't make you a sinner. That doesn't change your position. You know, you're still um, God's child. See the difference? There is so much rest when you pray from victory There is no rest when you're striving. Just know that he loves you. He's your father. He loves you infinitely. He finds no fault with you. He delights in your prayer requests. He wants your presence. Song of Songs, we read, let me see your face, your countenance. Then let me hear your voice. The new covenant is about his love for you, not your love for him. Say, Thank you for loving me. He longs to have you in his presence, to see your face and to hear your voice. Rest in him. Whatever is in the vine flows into the branches because of his great love for us. This is the phrase that highlights God's motivation in everything that he does in the Bible. Because of his great love for us, God created the world because of his great love for us. Uh, God created humans because he wanted to have relationship with us. Because of his great love for us, God gave us boundaries to teach us how to live an abundant life. Because of his great love for us, God sent his saviour because of his great love for us. God will turn even your failings, even your griefs into good. All because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. God didn't say, You ridiculous dead people, shape up, try harder. (laughs) Here's some more rules for you. No, He's not doing that at all. Dead people don't need regulations, dead people need resurrections. So God made us alive, even when we were dead in transgressions. This is what amazed John Newton, because before his prayer, after a lifetime of horrible things, abusing people, selling and slaving human beings, mocking people, trying to deconvert people, he's he's afraid he's going to die. And so in desperation, he cries out, "'Lord, have mercy on me!' He hadn't stopped his sinful behaviour, He hadn't changed one bit. All he did was ask for mercy and desperation, and he got it. And this is what just blew his mind. And this is what Paul's talking about here. When we were dead, we didn't have to prove anything to God. He just made us alive. That means you don't have to clean up your act first when you come to God. This is counterintuitive to most people. Paul says... No one deserves it. No one gets in because they're a good person. We're all saved from death into new life. When we are more focused on Jesus' love for us, we are delivered from self. We need a Christ consciousness rather than a sin consciousness. We need to be conscious of God's love for us. We need to receive that love. You know, in the Gospel of John, John is referred to five times as the disciple whom Jesus loved. You may have heard it preached that of all the disciples, Jesus loved John the most. But you know, that only appears in the Gospel of John. John is referring to himself. He's practicing the awareness of God's love for him. God loves us all the same. It's like if I said... Yesterday, I had coffee with friends. I was with Pastor Brian, Pastor John, Pastor Sarah, and the pastor whom Jesus loved. See, I'm practicing this awareness of God's love for me. We love because he loved us first. You know, psychologists would say that where someone gets their sense of significance, importance, worth, and value really determines their quality of life. If you get the sense of significance from your job, that's where your focus will be. If it's from our looks, when everything sags and goes south, we're not going to be in a very good place. But if I get my significance from God and his love for me, that's the most secure I could ever be. Number three, I'm saved by grace. It is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be Head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It is by grace that you are saved. It can't be clearer than that. He repeats it for emphasis. God raises us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. God saves us and he lifts us up. Verse seven, in order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then Paul launches into what may well be two of the most important verses in the whole Bible. It's verses eight and nine. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It means just believing. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul says the same thing four times in two verses. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift of God, not by work, so no one can boast. So don't live with worry about if you're good enough about if you will or won't make it to heaven, accept the gift of grace. It's by grace you've been saved through faith and not from yourself. It's the gift of God, not by works. Grace is a big part of the new covenant which we are all under now since Jesus died on the cross. Grace is all about supply. We just receive what Jesus has done, the finished work on the cross, You know, when the first words recorded when Jesus was a little boy, I'm about my my father's business, remember? And then his last words on the cross, it is finished as he spread out his arms, his last words, it's all done. This is not about our own effort. Jesus did it all. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is a faith thing. Just declare it out loud and believe it in your heart and you'll be saved by grace. So what is grace really? It's a huge part of the gospel. The new covenant we are all under since Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is largely about grace. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's all about what Jesus has done. It's not about doing. It's all about done. Grace is a gift of forgiveness we receive at the moment we believe. Grace along with the gift of his righteousness. We become a new creation at that point and also have eternal life. We don't have to do anything. No works. We just receive his grace. As you read read the other letters of Paul in the Bible, grace also empowers us to, to live like Jesus and become more like Jesus. Uh, producing real and practical outcomes in their lives, like being abundantly empowered for, for good deeds or enduring and not quitting when things seem difficult or even hopeless. Grace literally changes how you see yourself and how you see your life. Dr. Robert Emmons is a researcher at UC Davis on happiness biggest difference between unhappy people and happy people is that unhappy people apparently feel entitled i deserve i worked hard for this i should have more and happy people are just grateful i see everything they see everything they have as a gift they're, they're grateful and that's what the bible teaches us it's it's the way to live in god's grace This is the gospel. How do I receive this? Through faith, you just receive it. You just believe. So what does that mean? That means that you trust God and that he loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to accomplish all this for you. His death, his resurrection on the cross, it's all about you. And it's a gift. You just open it and enjoy it. And how do you do that? Well, first, you say, yes, Lord, I accept you are Lord. Then Jesus says, follow me. So number four, I am saved for a purpose. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He's prepared things in advance for us. It's no accident when, say, your elderly neighbor needs a ride to the doctor, when you kind of get that urge to bake some cookies for the new neighbors down the road, when we hear the kids need more Sunday school teachers in church. It's all a setup by God, and his nature is in us through Jesus. By grace, I am in Christ. You own Christ. And this empowers us to respond like Jesus. Handiwork. In the original Greek, the word handiwork is poema. It's like poem with an A on the end. We get our word poem from this word. But it's not just used for poems. It's also used in Greek for paintings and gourmet meals and beautiful buildings And it just means a work of art. So we're being described as a work of art. We are God's work of art. Because his grace and love changes us, we become more like Jesus. And his spirit empowers us to live more like Jesus. We respond to people, needs, opportunities, and handle divine interruptions to our lives in a way that points people to Jesus. It gives people a glimpse of what Jesus is like A taste of how Jesus loves. Paul's saying, God is the artist, and we are the artist's triumph, his masterpiece. He takes us and he takes all our mess and he turns it into a masterpiece, a masterpiece that gives him glory. And that is what happened in the life of John Newton. He eventually wrote a famous pamphlet arguing for the abolition of slavery telling about the horrors of slavery from the perspective that only he could tell it because he had lived it and had inflicted it on others. Then he joins forces with William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom. And on his deathbed, he gets the news that the slave trade has finally been made illegal. He went from a slave merchant to an abolitionist because he lived out the grace he had received. He became God's masterpiece from death to life. Where people put a full stop, God puts a comma. Okay, I invite you to take this moment for for silent prayer. This is just between you and God. Just bow your heads. Maybe you grew up with all this in church, but the wonder of grace gets lost in all the noise. Please take this time to simply say thank you to God for his lavish love and grace he has bestowed on you. And if you're new to all this, I would encourage you right now to also say thank you to God, to reach out in faith And just relax into God's loving embrace. Just receive the gift of grace, of forgiveness, of new life. Just hear Jesus saying, Follow me. And simply say, Yes, Lord. God, you're so good to us. Help us to reflect the grace you have given us to the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen.